Well, this has been an unusual week for me. Uh, my grandpa died last week, and so uh, our family uh, gathered in Indiana this past Monday uh, for his funeral. But it was, it was an amazing time for our family. For me, uh, personally, to, to reflect on the spiritual, spiritual heritage that God has given me. After my dad's family uh, moved to Illinois when he was in grade school, um, there were some neighbors down the street, an, an older couple, some senior saints a few doors down, who uh, invited him to Sunday school at their, at their church. My dad thought that was strange at first, never been in church, but he decided to go, and um, he and his siblings, one by one, came to faith in Christ because of that couple taking them to church, and uh, began serving in the church there, and um, eventually my grandpa decided that if the family was going to church, he, he decided he, he needed to figure out where he was with the Lord. And so he invited the pastor of that church to come over one Thursday evening. He sent everyone out of the family room and, and closed the doors, and two hours later he came out of that room having heard the gospel explained fully and submitting his life to Jesus Christ. And... Um, so it was amazing for me at the funeral, you know, speaking, looking out at, at our family, um, my parents, aunts, uncles, grandkids, great-grandkids, uh, following Christ, now even in the face of death, rejoicing in the gospel together. Um, and humanly speaking, you know, that was going on. I'm a Christian. I'm here today because uh, that couple, Ferd and Della McGuire, um, invited their new neighbor boy to VBS so many years ago. So it was a sweet time of reflection on God's kindness to our family for me, and I was thankful for that. And then um, Tuesday through Thursday, uh, Tom and John and Daniel and I went to Together for the Gospel uh, Pastors Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, and we were there for a few days together just listening to the word preached and discussing it together, and uh, I can say I'm just really grateful to be able to serve alongside uh, these guys and count them as, as good friends. Um, so I was thankful for that, and I think I speak for all four of us when I say we grew in our love for the church and for you as a church uh, this week, and so I was thankful for that time. The theme of the conference was the Protestant Reformation. So next year is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Um, so in, in the talks at the conference, history and scripture um, kind of merged together and one night there was a panel sharing stories of courage uh, for the sake of the gospel uh, during the Protestant Reformation. So just stories of, of men and women who, when called on to turn from Christ, refused steadfastly and, uh, and stood by their commitment to Scripture and to the nature of salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So the story was told of one man who was burned at the stake for believing these things, but um, as they were burning, the, the, the fire kept going out. Um, so for six excruciating hours, uh, they kept lighting and relighting the fires beneath them. Uh, despite this torture, he remained faithful and even gentle uh, in that suffering. In fact, his words uh, and his attitude, his demeanor as he was being burned left those who executed him, begging the authorities not to do any more executions of these Protestants in public uh, because people were converting to the Protestant faith just by watching them die. And so they said, we should be doing these executions you know, in secrecy somewhere, down in a dark dungeon where they can't be observed. Well, in Matthew 26, we read the not-quite-so-inspiring story of the disciples. 
in three different scenes from the final night before Jesus would die. So Matthew has been tracing the movement of Jesus and his disciples and relaying to us some of the conversations that they had along the way this final night together before the crucifixion. And in verses 30 through 56, we find three different scenes. So the first scene focuses on Jesus and Peter, although all of the disciples are present. And then the second scene focuses on Jesus and the the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, although again, all of the disciples are present. And then the third scene focuses on Jesus and Judas, and then Peter, although again, all of the disciples are present in each of these scenes. Now, if you showed up at church this morning looking for an encouraging passage, uh, I'm sorry, that's, that's not where we find ourselves this morning. These, these are dark passages. Uh, they are literally dark as night has fallen, but they are spiritually dark as Jesus takes these steps closer and closer to the cross. And the takeaway from these three scenes is that in the most important hours of Jesus' life, his first and some of his best followers deny him, neglect him, reject him, and abandon him. So the first scene is one of abandonment, uh, or really a prediction of abandonment. And it begins there in verse 30. Matthew says, And when they had sung a hymn, uh, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this is, this is a scene change. Uh, they sang a hymn, and they went out. So they had just celebrated the Passover meal together in the passage that Tom preached from last week. And now they are moving together as a crowd to the Mount of Olives. So the disciples are, are with Jesus. Uh, trials have come over the past several weeks in their lives. Trials have come. Opposition has increased. Uh, but the disciples have remained with uh, their teacher and their Lord. So in Luke 22, a parallel passage to this one in Matthew, Jesus says to them, You are the ones who have stayed with me in my trials. You are the ones who have stayed with me in my trials. They're not always clearly understanding Jesus, um, but they're never wavering in their loyalty to him. They're always there. They're a, a band of brothers that have been operating together, ministering together over the past three years, but But now, Jesus says, uh, for the first time in his life and in theirs, they will abandon him. They will deny him and flee. So in this first scene, Jesus speaks to all of the disciples. He says, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. There are really three predictions in this first scene. Uh, First, the shepherd will be struck. Second, the sheep will scatter. And third, the shepherd will live again. So the shepherd will be struck, uh, the sheep will scatter, but the shepherd will live again. So Jesus has been reading uh, the prophet Zechariah. Jesus reads the Old Testament constantly, meditates on it. You see that all throughout his ministry that he is able to spontaneously uh, recite scripture and fitting to the situation. And Jesus has been reading Zechariah and memorized this section near the end um, where Zechariah had said, I will pour out on the house of David. So Zechariah is looking ahead, foreseeing this future day. And he says, I will pour out on the house of David. Um, I'm sorry, this, so this is God speaking. Uh, Zechariah foreseeing this day when God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, 
On him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So Zechariah is looking into the future and sees a day when God will graciously grant repentance to Israel. A day when they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for their wrongdoing. And on that day, Zechariah says, a fount of cleansing will be opened uh, for forgiveness of sins and uncleanness. But when will this day happen? What, what will this day look like? Well, Zechariah goes on to say that on that same day, the Lord of hosts will say, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. So who is it that strikes the shepherd? It's the Lord of hosts. God strikes the shepherd. God is the one who has designed this plan, and Jesus has meditated on this passage and recognizes the meaning of it. And so Jesus is confident on the basis of Scripture that the suffering that he is about to endure fulfills the plan of God to to open a fountain of cleansing for his people, for the forgiveness of sins. So having committed this Old Testament passage to memory, um, Jesus moves forward in God's shocking plan to bring about forgiveness. But the disciples... The disciples don't wait to process everything that Jesus has just said to them. They're indignant regarding the second prediction, uh, the prediction that the sheep will be scattered, which Jesus clearly interprets to mean that the disciples will fall away from him. They will all fail in following Jesus. They insist that they would rather die than deny Jesus. They all say, They will not deny him. So Matthew zooms in on Peter, uh, but Peter is representative. You know, what Peter says here is is not different from the rest of them, but rather representative of the rest of them. And Peter says, they might all fall away, but I never will. And Matthew says, and they all said the same thing. Um, So they're all insisting, we won't do this. Maybe all the other 11 will, uh, not me. And they're, they're all insisting this will not happen. But, but Peter and the disciples are arguing with the wrong person. And to press this point, Jesus gets more specific with Peter. He says, truly or surely, certainly, this will not fail to happen tonight before the rooster crows. Three times you will deny me. Jesus knows the sheep will scatter. Meaning that he knows that in his desperate hour, he will be alone. And and note how Jesus quotes Uh, the Hebrew scriptures, he he quotes God's word in part to endure through suffering. So how could Jesus withstand the suffering that he's about to endure and on top of that being abandoned in the midst of it all? Well, he has developed confidence that all of these things are happening according to the plan of God. And so the life and work of Jesus are a constant reminder to us, not only here but all throughout his life, that memorizing scripture fuels obedience to God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And memorizing God's word fuels obedience to God. So David says in the Psalms, your word is a light to my feet. But what does that mean? What does that look like in day-to-day life? Well, Jesus shows us what that means when he quotes Zechariah in order to prepare himself to walk in obedience to the Father. 
even though the sheep will scatter and he will be abandoned. Memorizing Scripture fuels obedience to God. And if there's some dimension of your life where you are struggling to walk in obedience to God, no doubt all of us can think of an area like that. I wonder, have you committed some fitting passage of Scripture to memory as as a, a ready remedy to escape temptation and to walk in obedience? The disciples here underestimate their fears and they overestimate their courage. You know, Peter has great confidence because he is loyal to Jesus. But Peter teaches us that religious enthusiasm isn't the same as spiritual courage. And so Peter and all of the disciples are wrongly optimistic about their future obedience. They insist they won't fail in the future but their optimism is misplaced. And so they fail to prepare themselves in the way that Jesus does and really that Jesus models for them. Jesus is is persevering in obedience, not by self-confident religious zeal, uh, but by meditation on the will of God revealed in Scripture, committed to memory, absorbed in the heart, and then lived out in humble, uh, humble, dependent obedience on God. But now notice this third prediction Jesus makes in the first scene. He says the shepherd will be struck, uh, the sheep will scatter, and third, he says the shepherd will live again. After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus has spoken of his death many times in many different ways uh, to his disciples and to the crowds. And he's here predicting a resurrection after death. That's not the first time he's talked about this either. He has predicted his resurrection uh, to the disciples at least on three other occasions. So here for at least the fourth time, he predicts his resurrection after death. But again, the disciples seem to completely miss this. It it flies overhead while they just focus on their own works. You know, Jesus has just said that he is going to be killed, but that he will rise again after death. What an incredible prediction Jesus makes. And they replied, no, we won't deny you. You see the irony? They, they were so focused on their own works um, rather than this, this epic-making work of Jesus. So their attention was, was in the wrong place. So in the, the, the first scene, there's this, this prediction of abandonment, and you just see the, the disciples uh, misresponding to, to that prediction. And then there's a second scene here in verses 36 through 46, a scene that's really about neglect, uh, the disciples' neglect of Jesus, that is. So in verse 36, they've now arrived at the Mount of Olives, and they're, they're moving into a garden there at the base of the Mount of Olives. Um, this would have been a garden, probably a dense grove of olive trees named Gethsemane. <laughs> Now remember that as they've been walking, as, as they've approached the Mount of Olives, Jesus has just told them that they will all fall away and deny him, and they are insisting that they would rather die than fall away. And then they arrive here, and Jesus says, okay, I'm, I'm going to go over here and pray because my, my soul is, um, is so overwhelmed that it's as if I'm already experiencing death. Matthew says that our Lord was sorrowful and troubled. Um, So he says to the disciples, please stay here and stay awake. Pray with me. And then he goes further and he prays to the Father. Now Matthew records in this section that that Jesus prayed three times to the Father. 
He prays three different times, but saying basically the same thing each time. You see it there in verses uh, 39, 42, and again in 44. Jesus says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Your will be done. Now, the cup that Jesus refers to, Father, let this cup pass from me. Uh, The cup that Jesus refers to is the cup of God's wrath against sin. The cup that is filled up with God's wrath against sin. This wrath that God has against sin, against all that opposes Him, uh, includes death. So you think of what God's wrath against sin entails for you. It entails death, certainly physical death, which was the result of uh, the curse and the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, but it, it involves even more importantly spiritual death, separation from God both now and forever, uh, a God-forsakenness. You know, so those who are separated from God are the ones who die because they don't have the life that is in God. And so this cup of God's wrath includes death, physical death, uh, but even more than that, spiritual death and suffering, the forsakenness, the abandonment of God. And Jesus says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Jesus is being called by God to do something that he does not want to do. In the weakness of his human flesh, he does not want to endure the suffering that he knows is being demanded of him in order to walk out God's plan. We must never think that Jesus only appeared to suffer. He actually suffered. Although he was fully God, he really did suffer. Can God suffer? The doctrine of divine impassibility uh, teaches us that God is unable to suffer. Impassibility, passion, suffering, impassibility uh, cannot be caused to suffer. Uh, God cannot suffer. In his divine nature, uh, God is not subject to the actions of creatures against him. He is above and beyond and he does not suffer at our hands. This is true. But Jesus has not only a complete divine nature, but he also has a complete human nature. Jesus has the weakness of human flesh. Not sinful in any way, but certainly weak. Imagine this. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, who can bend both minute and cosmic events to fit in accordance with his purposes and will, this one suffers Matthew says he is sorrowful and troubled and suffering. You know, if you had the kind of power that Jesus had access to, wouldn't you want to use it to avoid suffering rather than endure it? And yet Jesus endures suffering. And you see here how he submits the weakness of his flesh to the will of the Father. He deals with his weakness through prayer by submitting to the will of the Father, prioritizing the will of the Father over the desires of his body. Father, your will be done. So you see this perfect unity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Within the Trinity, there's a design uh, that goes forward. God has planned it. The Son carries it out. He suffers for us. But there's another element to this this second scene. Not only is Jesus praying to the Father, but he also interacts with the disciples. And you see him say there at the beginning, sit here 
while I go over there and pray. And then he takes Peter, James, and John and goes a little further and then says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, (laughs) even to death. Remain here and watch with me. He comes back on them and finds them sleeping. This happens a number of times. He says, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus prioritized the obedience to God over uh, the desires of his body. You know, where the two were at odds, he wants obedience over relief. But this is in contrast to the disciples who yield to their bodily weakness. We might say they prioritize the desires of the body over obedience to God. We often wonder why frustrating sin patterns remain present in our lives. And though we will never be free from the presence of sin, isn't Jesus a reminder to us that by simple devotion to meditating on the words of God and praying for obedient faith, submitting our will to the Father's will, that we, we can gain we can gain both wisdom to know the way of obedience, which is revealed in the word of God, and we can gain strength to walk in it through humble prayer for God's will to be accomplished in us. How can you avoid spiritual slumber? Jesus says to the disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Be alert and pray against temptation. Uh, Meditating on the word of God and praying for the will of God results in a life well-lived and pleasing to him. And this isn't to erase the reality of suffering and the difficulty of it. This isn't to erase the complexity of decision-making and determining what God may want us to do. But the grace that God has given us to meet these challenges, challenges of suffering and uncertainty, the grace he has given us to meet these things is found in his word and in humble prayer to him. The disciples didn't want to deny Jesus. They insisted uh, that they would follow him, that they would never deny. Their spirit was willing. But they also didn't share in prayer the means for overcoming the weakness of the flesh. You know, they, they want the victory of obedience, but they neglect the means of prayer. Jesus says to them, finally in verse 45, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So while Jesus is still saying this, Matthew says, while he is still speaking, Judas arrives with an armed crowd, which sets up yet another scene, this this third scene in our passage this morning in, in Matthew's account. Judas Uh, walks up to Jesus and confirms his identity by greeting him with a kiss. As soon as he does this, the armed crowd moves toward Jesus. And when Peter sees what's happening, he draws his sword on them. Um, Now, verse 47 says, this is a great crowd with swords and clubs. They're grabbing whatever they can find to go get Jesus. And The Gospel of John tells us a band of soldiers was leading the way. So you've got a band of trained soldiers and a great crowd behind them with swords and clubs, and Peter sees them moving toward Jesus, and this fisherman pulls out his sword on him. What's he thinking? 
What's, what's he going to accomplish against them? Uh, who knows? Maybe he is intent on fulfilling his, uh, his, um, you know, his devotion to Jesus. He's, he's not going to deny him. He had insisted, I would rather die than fall away. And you can see him drawing that sword. Here it is. I'm going to die rather than fall away. But notice where Jesus is. And Jesus is behind Peter. Uh, Peter's out in front. Peter, Peter is in front of Jesus, not behind him. Peter's not following Jesus, uh, but rather presuming to act on his behalf. And Jesus rebukes Peter um, for fighting the wrong kind of battle. Jesus is a king, to be sure. That's, that's the whole point of the book of Matthew, that Jesus is the king, the son of man, this phrase, this title that Jesus refers to himself by over and over, the son of man is the king of the universe. But Peter was envisioning the wrong kind of kingdom. And Jesus didn't come to bring victory over the chief priest or even over the Roman Empire. That would be too small and short-lived a victory. Jesus came not to defeat uh, a human tyranny, but rather to deliver humanity Uh, from spiritual tyranny. So the book of Hebrews says that Jesus shared in flesh and blood. He became human in order to conquer death and to deliver humanity from the one who has the power of death. And Jesus was fighting a different kind of battle. But Jesus says this is all happening in order to fulfill the scriptures. You see him say that twice in verse uh, 54 and then again in verse 56. So in verse 54, Matthew says, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Don't you think that I can appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? And then again in verses 55 and 56, At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was sitting in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. But what scriptures is Jesus referring to? Earlier, he had said, Strike the shepherd. Uh, and the sheep will scatter. And he was, he was quoting Zechariah at that point. But here he's, he's not quoting a specific scripture passage, but rather referring generally to the, the scriptures, the, the Hebrew scriptures. Um, he's referring to the prophets very generally, the scriptures of the prophets. In other words, all of the promises of God scattered throughout the history of Israel and, and the writings of uh, Israel's scriptures, all of those promises of God scattered in so many places depended on and really were fulfilled in the works of Jesus, especially his suffering on our behalf. The scriptures are being fulfilled as Jesus is being taken away. But Peter's confounded. He, he's not understanding what's happening. And, and so he doesn't know what to do. He thought, um, he thought drawing the sword would be the right thing to do, the right way to identify with Jesus and not neglect him in this moment. And when Jesus says, put the sword away, what, what does he do? What now? And so Matthew says, 
Then all the disciples left him and fled. His first and best disciples, you know, these are the giants, the patriarchs of Christianity, and they all left him and fled. So here stands Jesus, neglected, betrayed, abandoned. And so, so Jesus was abandoned, and, and we grieve these dark hours. These are some of the darkest verses in all of Scripture. But we, we grieve these verses partly because as we read them, they're like a mirror to us. We see ourselves in the disciples in so many ways. You know, we realize that when Jesus says the sheep will scatter, he predicts not only the actions of the 12 disciples, but also to some extent the actions of his followers everywhere. No one is perfectly, consistently identifying with Jesus. We, we all fall away and scatter at times. So in, in the first few centuries of the church, um, after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, those first few hundred years, um, the, the church, Christians were constantly subject to the ever-changing opinions of the emperors about Christianity. So one emperor would rise to power who hated Christianity and would allow persecution and at times even institutionalize um, you know, free reign to go and plunder Christian property and to persecute Christians for any number of reasons. And during these times of great persecution in the early church, uh, many Christians would flee for safer places. They would go to other lands or they would go into hiding. Uh, Some Christians would actually recant their faith uh, in order to avoid persecution. Then maybe some some years later, another emperor would rise to power who uh, embraced or at least permitted Christianity and he would overturn those those laws uh, for persecution and he would protect the Christians and even um, embrace them to some extent. And so, you know, in this period of comfort and, and freedom from hostility, then many of those Christians who had f- fled would, would return and uh, they'd want back into church, you know, and those who had recanted their faith would, would want back into the fellowship. And, and the church had a hard time figuring out what to do with these people. There were some who, who said, they're they're not believers. They're not of us. You know, when, when there was persecution, they showed their true colors by, by fleeing away. Jesus said in Matthew 10, if you deny me before my Father in heaven, or if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. How could we let them back into the church? Um, but there were, there were others who's, who urged patience and forgiveness and compassion, pointing to Peter. Didn't even Jesus and, or Peter and the disciples flee Jesus in, in this hour? And yet Jesus restored him and said to Peter, you're the rock on which I will build my church. And so they had this difficulty figuring out what to do with these people. So, you know, we recognize that, that in the disciples, um, in Christians throughout history, we're a mixed lot. You know, sometimes there's success, to be sure, in identifying with Christ in the midst of persecution, and other times there's great failure. We also read this passage, and we want to know how we can avoid abandoning him in the future. The disciples were insisting they would not fall away, and they did. How can we avoid that same kind of abandonment? 
We can't recreate the Garden of Gethsemane and the situation that was going on in this passage, but in the places that God has put us, he's assigned our places, our neighborhoods, our state, our country, our time. In the places that God has put us, what does it look like to identify with Jesus? You know, again, we notice that in this first scene, Peter tried to identify with Jesus uh, by insisting that he would not deny him. Uh, but in that, Peter is portrayed as naive. Maybe he should have been um, praying rather than, than insisting. Uh, he's naive to his, his own failures, the capacity for failure that lies within him. But then in the third scene, he identifies with Jesus by drawing the sword. A very different kind of reaction, but again, he, he gets it wrong. And so we're left to ask, well, what does it look like to identify with Jesus? You know, what does it mean for the church? What does it mean for Christ's covenant church to identify with Jesus? In the situation, in the culture that God has placed us in, what does it look like to identify with him? We, we cannot approach our culture with our end game being to leverage political influence to change moral norms. The hearts of people cannot be changed by political policies, by laws. External means are never sufficient to bring about internal change. Only God does that. Our ultimate goal is not to bend the moral norms of our society to fit the moral norms of Christianity. Jesus never suggested anything like that. No, rather, what we want as followers of Jesus, um, figuring out what it means to identify with him, what, what we want is that all, in, in all of the places that God has put us, in the hundreds of relationships that we collectively have around Raleigh, Uh, We want to proclaim the beating heart of Christianity. And the beating heart of Christianity is not our moral code, but rather the gospel. And we love the law of God. It's good. It's from him. It's a reflection of him. God gave it. But the law does not save. You know, the good news of Christianity, the beating heart of Christianity, is that we have all broken the moral code. But that Jesus alone kept the moral code And that all those who have simple faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of sin and believing in him by faith, will be considered by God as law abiders rather than law breakers. Meaning that we can enjoy communion and fellowship with our God and creator. Once again, what was lost in Adam and Eve can be regained through Jesus Christ. We can enter into paradise again. The shepherd was struck But the shepherd lives again so that the sheep who scattered might be reunited to their shepherd who cares for them and who feeds them. This is the good news that we must embrace and cherish and internalize, absorb into our hearts, walk out in life and proclaim to others. In 1 Peter 2, uh, which we considered together as a church a couple weeks ago, Peter says, this is why you were chosen. You you are a chosen people, and this is why. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our culture is is shifting, certainly. And, And it can be difficult to know what our role is. We may feel uncertainty at times. You know, Stacy and I are are grateful to God to have a daughter on the way. Uh, but we, we have wondered out loud what kind of world she'll live in in 10 years. 
But we must never think that changing culture is our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is to be obedient to Jesus in all that we do. And if He wants to use our faithfulness to Him to change culture, then He can do that. But that's up to Him, not us. That's a responsibility that is God's, not ours. And we must never take as our own responsibility that which is God's. This is why Peter says later in his letter, and you can imagine Peter writing so many years after this event, trying to work out for Christians in the midst of hostility what it looks like to identify with Jesus uh, as, as exiles in the midst of a hostile society. He says to them, Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he goes on to say, But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd, the guardian of your souls. The shepherd was struck. The sheep often scatter. But the shepherd was raised again so that we might have life through the shepherd and overseer, the guardian of our souls. So we walk with confidence in Christ. We walk with confidence in God's sovereignty and purposes for us. Then we go out by faith and and live out our Christian identity in all of the places that God has put us. That is our call to identify with him this week, to to live out your Christian identity in the places that God has put you. Simply tell someone that you're a Christian this week. Bless the community in some way through good works. Pray for your neighbors. Look for ways to show kindness to them. As you have opportunity, speak of, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. By God's grace, may we as as individuals and as a congregation be incrementally more and more uh, like our Savior who did not revile in return, who when suffering uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to the Father. Let's pray together now that God would do this in us. As we take a moment for um, silent confession and reflection, give thanks for the shepherd who was struck for you. Ask for wisdom that you might identify with him well in the days ahead. Walk in humble dependence on the shepherd. And after a time of silent prayer, an elder will come and close us.